Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. Hey, everyone, from KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Guy Marzarati in for Scott Schaefer. And today on The Breakdown, lawmakers are entering their final week of the legislative session. We're in Sacramento to sit down with one of the committee chairs who's arguably received the most attention and scrutiny this year. Los Angeles Assemblyman Reggie Jones-Sawyer is here with us in studio. His district includes South Central L.A. And he's chair of the Assembly Public Safety Committee, where much of the hotly debated criminal justice and fentanyl-related legislation met its fate this year. We're going to talk with him about how his life has informed his leadership here in Sacramento. Assemblymember, welcome to The Breakdown. Great to be here this morning. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for being here. Um, You know, we would like to talk a little bit about your life before we get into your policy making, because I think it's really informed how you have governed. Um, I know you were born in Little Rock, Arkansas, where your family had a pretty deep history. Tell us a little bit about your family there and uh, their kind of involvement in the civil rights movement, really. So um, I usually tell the story of uh, when I finally got to college, I was having a really, really good time. I'm talking about a really good time. I'm talking <laughs> academic probation good time. And uh, about to get kicked out of USC and I had to go sit at the foot of my grandmother. And my grandmother would have a ladle in her hand. If it was in her left hand, she wanted to talk. If it was in her right hand, it mean the beatings were going to start. And I started telling her, because she didn't graduate from elementary school, and wow. I tried to tell her she didn't know what she was talking about. We're national champions. I'm going to this fancy school. I'm, you know, I'm in a fraternity and everything. So the ladle went from the left hand to the right hand. That meant shut up. And so she told me the story and she said, look, when you were a baby, I was born in 1957, the same time my uncle was entering Little Rock Central High School with the Little Rock Nine, uh, who were trained in nonviolence with uh, Martin Luther King and Reverend Lawson. And she said she got a phone call one day while she was cooking. And the voice was from the Klan. And the Ku Klux Klan told her to get her son out of school or your grandson will never make it to school. She said, that grandson was you. You have absolutely no right to give up this education. And in fact, you had to leave Arkansas because we knew something was better for you Mm. away from here. Um, After since then, um, I was on the uh, dean's list and I never looked back. (laughs) And and so I I attribute that to them telling me those stories about... um, being able to change history. And if you talk to anyone at the Little Rock Nine during that time, um, they just wanted to go to school. They were kids. They, want, they were yeah. kids. Think about it. They were 15, 16 wow. years old. And they had to send the 101st Airborne down to protect them to go to school every day. They were kicked. They were beaten. They were called the N-word almost every day. And they had to endure it for a year. And um, there's a picture of my uncle standing next to a fence post where um, – they forgot to pick him up one day, and the group of kids surrounded him, 
and started, you know, needling him and giving him a hard time. And uh, there's a p- famous picture of him standing by this lamppost, and across the street you can see all the racists yelling at him, and he's not moving. He's not moving at all. And uh, my, uh, when they finally got to him, they realized he was in shock because they surrounded mm-hmm. When they asked him, how did you survive it? And he said, I never gave them any hate back. Mm-hmm. I never let them give me any fear. Um, and he said there was a kid there that came over and said, leave him alone and made everybody disperse. The next day he said, hey, why did you, why did you come help me? You must be a really Christian person. It was really great. And the guy said, well, my family's atheist. I just did it because it was the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. And ever since then I realized no matter what the controversy is, just do the right thing and things will work out. I mean, I can imagine not just the toll on him, but on his family, siblings. Yeah. My mother, uh, uh, another story to tell you real quick. My mother, remember, um, I asked her what she do during that time because there were eight kids and everybody had a job. And she said, I uh, washed your uncle's shirt every night. And I made, you know, you know, 15, 14 years old. I said, I mean, you didn't do anything. And my uncle heard me, and he grabbed me by the scruff of my neck, and he said, let me tell you something. Every night that I, every day I went to school, somebody had to pick something on me, urinated on me, took a marker on this white shirt. Every night, your mother stayed up all night to make sure that shirt was white as it could be. She bleached it. She did everything she could. So when I went back every day, they saw me in that same white shirt, clean as a whistle and that was my flag to say you're never going to stop me no matter what you do you can't stop me your mother did that that was her job your mother probably had a more important um, thing to do in this struggle than anybody else well you mentioned that you did end up at USC but I know before that even after moving to LA you you had a tough childhood you've talked about that your mother was abused by your father can you just tell us a little bit about you know your experiences as a kid and kind of what you what you carried with you from those And so I I I've learned that a lot of things that happen to young people um when you're traumatized and that's why I do a lot of work getting um money for people with childhood trauma so they can get beyond it. Um, many don't, and they end up in the criminal justice system because of early childhood trauma. Um, and so living in the projects, um, you see some things that um, no young kid should ever see, and whether or not uh, domestic violence um, that my mother experienced, that our family experienced. Um, you know, I was molested as a kid with a babysitter. Um, my uncle um, was stabbed seven times in front of his uh, family members and killed in front of my aunt. Um, and I have a, I had an uncle, not an uncle, but a, a, a cousin who was uh, transgender, and uh, which we didn't know what that was back then. So Julius became Jules mm-hmm. and uh, was going through the procedure. And one day somebody killed Jules and violated that body wow. that they had. And... Um, I mean, All of you, that. Yeah. How did you kind of make it out of that? I mean, um, so one of the things that I think um, really helped um, is uh, I, for some reason um, I got involved with a, a, a mental health professional who, as we went through a lot of the, the pain and the hurt and talked through it, um, one, I realized none of it was my fault. 
and I took a lot of blame onto myself uh, to, to know that, that, you know, there's some things I heard as far as the domestic violence that I did. I was so, you know, you're six or five years old. I wanted to go help my mother, but I was in shock and I didn't do anything. And so I always carried that guilt. There were things that happened um, with my uncles and her that I wanted to do something, but I couldn't do anything. Again, I had that guilt and I wanted to lash out and that anger was in me. They taught me to, to not only release it, but to talk about it. Um, but I still never really talked about it in public. I think for a lot of African-Americans, especially African-Americans in my community, we don't, especially African-American males, we don't talk about the pain and the hurt that we, we experience. And I'm noticing that even with um, in my work with public safety, there are a lot of people, firefighters, police officers, mm-hmm. um, prison guards and other, that experience some of the most horrendous types of uh, scenes that you could possibly deal with. And they're not releasing or filling a, a place that they, they can get released at. Um, some of us use substance mm-hmm. and substance abuse. And that's why you see so much out there on the street, the substance abuse, because we're not able to heal ourselves. You know, when you have a mental crisis, it's not like uh, having a cold and you go get some cough medicine or somebody gives you a shot to, to help you cure yourself. This is something that um, you can't see, but you but it's just as damaging as anything else. Stress is a killer like you wouldn't believe. Yep. Yeah. And I don't think people understand that. Do you see at all your path in public service that you ended up pursuing as a way to take action, a way to take back kind of empowerment um, and a way to kind of take forward the experiences that you went through as a child? So I don't know how I got here. I kind of do, but I really <laughs> don't know. Um, on December 22nd, uh, 2020, 2022, I had a minor operation and I died. I literally died. Um, and I was brought back to life by the, the nurses who took quick action. Um, during that time, I saw a lot of things. I was out for about four hours. And when I finally came to, I saw my family around me. And I asked them, you know, it only takes, it was a one day operation. I said, it only takes one of you to drive the car. Why is everybody around my, and that's when they told me I had passed away. One of the things I tell people is I, I was able to see my um, my five-year-old grandson graduate from college. And one of the things that I saw, I saw a lot of things. And uh, it made it clear why I am here right now, um, that there's some things that um, I need to do. There were some challenges that are I'm meeting now that I actually saw during that time that if I had said something, I think people thought I would think I was a little nuts. I mean, there's, we, we have history of people who um, experience life and death situations and they come back and tell you mm. what they saw and people kind of look at you funny. Well, as somebody that's been through that, um, I believe that sometimes, um, God has a way of saying, I need to talk to you for a little bit. Uh, because when I went back to my hospital and said, why did I die? Why did I have a cardiac arrest? I had a cardiac arrest on the 22nd. What caused it? And nobody, to this day, nobody knows how it caused it. Um, but when I went to, went to my church, and they pointed up to the sky and said, I know. They said, God just needed to talk to you for a little bit. And right after that, I'm starting this new journey of why I need to to do more um, to not only help my people, but to make sure that everyone has a a 
as a society that works best for them. And uh, for the first time, I realized I'm in a position to really kind of help people, especially disadvantaged people, especially homeless people, mm-hmm. especially people who don't have a voice. It's it's That's why I'm here. All right. Hold it there. We're going to take a very short break. And when we come back, we'll continue talking to L.A. Assemblyman Reggie Jones-Sawyer. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here this week with Guy Marzarati. We are talking with Los Angeles Assemblyman Reggie Jones-Sawyer. So we mentioned... um, you know, you had a, a pretty traumatic childhood. You ended up at USC. I know you spent uh, time working in college at the morgue during the crack epidemic. Um, and then you go on to work in L.A. city government for decades. And I kind of want to jump forward because we only have so much time. You were elected to the assembly in 2012. And this was really right after the Supreme Court had ordered the state to lower its prison population Lawmakers and the governor were really grappling with how to do that, how to do that while ensuring public safety. Um, And you end up getting tapped to work on the public safety committee pretty soon after to lead it. How did that kind of come to be? And and was that something that you welcomed or thought you might be doing when you got up here? I know you ran on more of the kind of economic job creation platform. Yes. And as uh, I worked for the city for 25 years, uh, I deal real estate. I was ended up director of real estate when I retired from the city. And so when I first got here, I wanted to uh, change the criminal justice system from the courts. And so I decided that since they were um, during the during the time when we didn't have any money, um, we had kind of it was about a billion dollars that the court system was in the hole. And so I made a, a concerted effort to restore that money. But I want to restore that money so that they would have diversion programs and they would have um, uh, drug courts and juvenile courts and homeless courts and courts that would help people um, divert from the prison uh, population. And when I first started, the judges told me that I couldn't do that, that one, I wasn't a lawyer. I didn't know what I was talking about. And I said, well, that's fine. But um, right now, I'm in charge of the purse string. <laughs> you want to get out of this yeah, deficit yeah, yeah. or not? <laughs> and so I worked really hard over the over the next five years, one to restore that billion dollars so they could run efficiently, so we so people would have access to justice from the criminal justice system. But at that time, we had um, three strikes. We had um, sentences that were predetermined. No matter what happened, judges could only do that. And so we started to move the courts to a, a where judges were able to actually look at the holistic um, individual and figure out a way what is best for, say, public safety, and then they make the decision. You've had a decade now in the legislature, I think seven years chairing this public safety committee. Where would you point to as kind of maybe your greatest mark on public safety on the criminal legal system in California? So when we looked at um, ways 
we can ensure that people didn't recidivate and lowering the, the number of people who recidivated back in the prison. When we made a conscious effort to make sure that they were trained, they had jobs, they got better educated, got off of drugs, and if they had mental health problems, when we started to focus like a laser on those things, there were fewer and fewer people coming back in the prison because it was, it was like a revolving door. And so the prison population obviously ballooned to about 160,000. Now it's about 96,000 people who are incarcerated. That means we have an opportunity to close prisons. And this year I, I asked that one of the two of the savings, the two of the prisons that the governor is closing will result in $230 million of annual savings that I want to plow it back into programs that, that help people with mental health in the, in the communities, that better education, boys and girls clubs, um, Saturday night basketball, things that keep kids out of, out of, um, problem areas so that we don't refill the prisons again and that we have productive citizens. Well, and I think if you look at the data, I'm looking at recent numbers from the money that's been saved from Prop 47, one of the reforms, Mm -hmm. uh, the recidivism rates are just so low if people actually complete these programs. But as you know, there was a lot of reforms that happened. Realignment, Prop 47, three strikes Mm -hmm. reform, Prop 57. And there's been some backlash. And I just wonder... Is there any argument we went too far too fast? Do you, when you talk to people who are worried about public safety these days, do you ever feel like, okay, maybe we, you know, should have been a little bit slower on some of these changes? So we went too far too fast when we did three strikes and other things. And then we were trying to adjust. You mean the, the tough on crime area? The tough on crime yeah. area. And now we're, and then, then when you do an adjustment, because there is no law that is it's perfect and like i usually tell people it's uh and i'm an elected official so i can say this it's never legislation it's always implementation and, and so if we had implemented it to its fullest if we had people totally involved in making sure it got corrected um we would not be in the situation where the example i will give you i did uh ab 1065 organized retail theft which is now, that was done in 2018. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That little small unit of CHP and the DOJ have resulted in $30 million brought back, over 1,800 um, convictions or, or uh, places where they've actually arrested people. Um, been unbelievably successful. We did that with Jerry Brown. Then when Governor Gavin Newsom looked at the, the statistics, he gave it another $200 million to expand it because it was successful. And now when you actually look at the number of people who are being arrested now on the smashing grabs, it's, the, it's based on the organized retail theft law that I instituted. And what it does is it charges people with felonies so that they not only get um, several years in jail, but um, Attorney General Bonta is also charging with federal crimes, which could get up to 20 years in jail. So that way you go after the organizers of it and get them off the street. But you still have an opportunity to deal with people who you can give some services to. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of combination we needed to do. And we needed to spread it and expand it um, to make Prop 47 
better. Hmm. That's where we're at. We got to make Prop 47 better and not eliminate it. That's the struggle right now. Yeah. It's either well, it's yin hard or too, yang. Right? Right. Yes. Because there is this sense that people, and it's, I think, in large part driven by viral videos, yeah. that sense of lawlessness or that you could get away with mm-hmm. shoplifting. How do you respond to those kind of criticisms? And it's difficult. Uh, one of my early uh, political mentors once told me, uh, perception is reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, the chief of police of LAPD, Los Angeles Police Department, can tell you every day that violent crime is down. He can tell you that crime is down. But if you see those videos on TV, you think what do you crime, feel? you yeah. feel crime. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing, that, which I think is also distressing, that we have to come to grips with, um, that there's a there's a there's a racial aspect to it. So when you see homeless people out on the street, and you know you see African American homeless people out on the street, um, there are people who are not African Americans who then feel are feel for black people anyway, clutching their purses when they get on the elevator, and then that's exacerbated when you walk out every day and you see a homeless person out there, and so that just that subconsciously. Is is giving the impression that everything is worse. Um, how many times do you hear um, that because of the homeless situation, this looks like a third world country, yeah. and, and and statements like that. Um, and so we we've really got to come to grips with our own what what we feel, and just try to focus like a laser on how to resolve that because that that's part of it. Because perception is really reality for a lot of people. Absolutely. I want to ask you really quickly before we talk about fentanyl. Um, the other law that got passed to kind of tweak 47 was to allow folks to aggregate charges, DAs to oh, aggregate yeah. charges, right? So that if you are a repeat, you know, shoplifter, even if you're not part of a big ring, you can get charged with a felony, even if the dollar amount, you know, doesn't get to that felony threshold. I've been doing some research. I have not been able to find any examples of this law being used. One DA says he's never had police print that present that sort of case. Others have told me they think it's just difficult for law enforcement to build these cases. What's your response to that kind of you know, reaction? Because we hear a lot of kind of hating on 47 from law enforcement. Right. And that, that's, been, that's been a real problem. And that's why I talk about, um, for example, fentanyl. I said we need to unite the fight on fentanyl. We need to unite the fight against criminals. We need to unite the fight um, to protect citizens. Uh, because we can't pull it all together. Collaboration is the only way we're going to ultimately be able to get this done. If if law enforcement is not doing a job because they think Prop 47 is preventing them when, in fact, we do have laws in the books that they can. Think about it. If the attorney general and the CHP can aggregate and do it, that means other law enforcement officers can do that. Um, we need to to put down all the rhetoric and then come together to, to get this done. No one, no one, Republican, Democrat, moderate, progressive, no one wants to get to let criminals get away with anything. And that, that is a fallacy whatsoever. And so there are laws on the books that you can actually prosecute it. When I hear from a business owner that says, I see someone in my store, I call the police, Three hours later, they show up and said they don't really come to these because of Prop 47. Well, that's not true. If you catch somebody in your store, 
burglarizing it, you can prosecute them and you can prosecute them to the fullest. So somehow we've, we've got to have a, a collaborative conversation to where we're all working together um, to do what we need to do to, to give people a perception that criminals are being prosecuted. I want to ask about fentanyl. There's a, been a number of bills that moved through the uh, Public mm-hmm. Safety Committee this year dealing with increasing sentencing for dealing fentanyl that were voted down. Some of them even brought by Democrats. And I wonder, you know, in Sacramento, you often get bills that get kind of a courtesy I vote in committee. Members might not completely support the idea, but they want to see the bill move forward. They want to see negotiations or kind of compromise continue. Why did you feel, I guess, that those bills were legislatively irredeemable? They couldn't move past uh, your committee. So there were, when those bills come, um, the the committee as a whole try to figure out a way um, so that they can pass. It is usually up to the author whether or not they accept amendments. Um, probably 90% of the time, maybe close to 100% of the time, the reason they don't get out is because they refuse any kind of amendments. They want it to go through purely as, as the way it is. Um, there is no legislation that doesn't have some kind of change um, so that we can move forward with it. And so um, uh, even even when even when we don't vote on something, meaning if um, uh, some of the legislation that goes through where the committee does a no vote, they just don't vote at all, that means they want to do more research and look at it, and then hopefully it'll get passed in January. Well, that was looked upon as a no vote. It's not a no vote. It's, look, let's 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 get back past the rhetoric. Let's get past the politics and the press. And let's get into the policy of what we really need to do. Because once you get to the root of what you're trying to solve, because that's what we, we well, always talk about. What do you think about. we need to do around fentanyl? I mean, it is a crisis. It's horrific what's well, happening. We have, we have a $5 billion bond. Yeah, tell us about that. That, um, that we, we, the Democrats, put together um, a, a group of law enforcement, medical professionals, psychiatrists, drug abuse um, specialists. And they all came together, and we had here we had a hearing. And whether it was a judge, a DA, law enforcement, each of them said we needed a public health solution to fentanyl and, and that um, tough-on-crime uh, measures did not work. So I believe we could stop the opioid epidemic if we had better education and we went to the schools. Also, making sure we had Narcan. That's what my bond does. Make sure we had Narcan in every school or in places so we can stop the overdose, especially in Skid Row, where my district is, um, that we can stop it. And so this bond, November 2024, is what you're pushing for? Is, yes. is that right? Yes. We were trying to get it on the, um, obviously, we wanted to get it on the march, but... Um, the governor the, has other, other the, things going uh, on. There's a bigger <laughs> name. Yes, yes. So uh, we're running short on time. The last thing we want to ask you about is reparations. You were involved ah. on the uh, task force multi-year process, came out with a final report this summer. It sounds like most of the legislative action is probably going to happen starting next year. Correct. Bills getting introduced that Correct. came uh, ideas from the report. If we're sitting here in a year, what does success look like to you on reparations over the course of the next year? And so... Um, the main, the two main people who are going to be involved in it is Senator uh, Stephen Bradford and myself. And we'll be pushing both legislative and budgetary recommendations moving forward through both houses and to the governor. Um, for us, 
with this being our last year, obviously we would like to get everything done, but we're going to try to get as much done as possible, um, knowing the reality may be a multi-year process. Of course, yeah. But we've got to at least set up the initial parameters, especially the easy things, like uh, uh, an apology letter should not be something that's ultimately controversial. Um, looking at ways we can ensure that that African-American, especially young kids, can get um, into higher education. Um, the law school uh, at UCLA, the, the numbers are abysmal. If we just worked real hard to figure out a way we can get more and more of our kids there. And then um, we're really seriously looking at innovative ways um, to be able to close the wealth gap. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that, and it's even harder now with the housing crisis and the housing being so expensive. But that is, if you look at what is the wealth gap between white and, Af- and African-Americans, it's the home. And mm-hmm. if we can start to own land, then we can go to the next step, owning a business or stocks and bonds. But it's, it's, a, it's a gradual thing. But we, the first thing we got to start is uh, financial literacy and being able to get people to, to, to start to own and buy homes and remove those barriers from us being able to uh, access uh, property. All right. We're going to have to leave it there. Assemblyman Reggie Jones-Sawyer, thanks for coming in. Appreciate your time. All right. Thank you. Thank you both. This was great. That's going to do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. Our engineers today are Brendan Willard and Christopher Beal. I'm Guy Marzarati. And I'm Marisa Lagos. We'll see you next week. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, and I hope you'll join me on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Every Thursday, I'm getting the inside take from the best reporters in the country on what figures like Elon Musk, Donald Trump, Kevin McCarthy, and Marjorie Taylor Greene are doing. I think she wants to make things happen. She wants to get legislation passed. She made clear to me that she wants to have a president who upholds Christian values. She embraces the term Christian nationalist. That's Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm David Axelrod. CNN senior political commentator, former senior advisor to President Obama, and host of the Axe Files podcast. Join me each week as I interview key figures shaping our world from politics to the arts to sports and beyond. Listen on your favorite podcast app or ask your smart speaker to play The Axe Files with David Axelrod.